Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. Welcome back to the... What is this voice I'm doing? Anyway, um, <laughs> I've got a special guest with me. Um, I, you, some of you may or may not recognize Mr. Eric Feltis here with me today. Hi, Eric. Um, Eric and I met on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> Eric reached out to me and we did an Instagram live together and just kind of saw such overlap in the things that we were going after, the things we talk about. Even in Why was that funny? <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on that. That we met on Instagram? Yeah. It's funny because I'm like, to me, meeting someone on Instagram sounded, I don't know, it sounded funny, like, oh, that's not normal, but. It sounds very 2022 to me, or like, it sounds very like pandemic to me, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, because the thing is, like, I ended up going to LA a few months after meeting Eric, and he, he and I got dinner while I was there, and then we were at a party, so we got to hang out, like, quite a bit while I was there, and anyway, so through all of that overlap, there was just a lot of uh, commonality, um, we both are in very similar spaces, very similar things that we go after. Well, I think our approach is different, but uh, there's just such a synchronicity. Is that the word? Um, you know, to the work we're doing. So anyway, I think this was an eventuality. This was like inevitable. So here we are. The day is coming. We're doing this. Um, so I'm excited to introduce everyone here to Eric, if you haven't um, found him yet. So he's making waves on Instagram and TikTok. Anywhere else, Eric, like social media wise? Oh, social media wise. Um, no, I, no, those are the, I would say Instagram is number one, TikTok okay. too, but yeah. Why would you say Instagram is number one? Well, so I do have more followers on TikTok, but I am, I feel more emotionally connected to people on Instagram. I get the majority of my clients through Instagram. I have found that I do post a lot mostly the same content to be honest on both platforms but and I do think that it's easier for me to spit out content on TikTok um I get a lot more hate thrown back at me on TikTok which is great material to use for lessons for learning experiences um but I think that Instagram is easier to connect with people on an individual level um, just the way the platform is, it's easier to DM people. It's, it's just more approachable. Agreed. I feel the exact same way, <laughs> except for most of my hate comes from Facebook, believe it or not. Interesting. I don't have a, that's why I hesitate. I do have a small, um, you know, Facebook group, but you know, someone early on in my, in my, uh, business told me stick with one platform and together we decided that it is okay for me to be on TikTok and Instagram because it is so similar but then I broke the rule and I, and I developed this Facebook page and he's like don't do it and now for me personally it's true it doesn't work because it is so different I just it ended up just kind of going at the wayside it's there but maybe someday if I have more support resources I'll get back to it but it's just not something that is anything other than a time suck at this point right now totally I I don't know that I disagree about my experience either but Listen, but if you're getting, if you're getting those 
learning, if you're getting presented with opportunities to teach through uh, the assholery of others on Facebook, then I'm all for it. I welcome the assholery in any form it comes. Mm. Yes, definitely receiving that. There's a lot of assholery coming my way. Okay, so before we get any further, I want to just um, say, first of all, everyone, you all know this, but I'm going to say it for the sake of, in case anybody's new, Eric, you have permission to say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. I'm not interested in censoring you. I don't need you to put on kid gloves when you're speaking to me or any of us. Please say what the things the way you would say them. And then the rest of us get to work out. Like, what are we going to do with that? Do we agree? Do we hate that? Are we offended? We get to work it out. That's not your job. Yes. I love making people uncomfortable. Mike, have I ever been censored around you that you know of? <laughs> no, you're right. It's not, that's not, <laughs> not in your nature. No. <laughs> I think that there is like a time there. It doesn't mean I would like to think that it's not. I would like to think that I'm not res- disrespectful, though. Let me be clear. It's easy for me to joke around about this. And y'all, if you don't know me, you'll notice that I jump very quickly between joking and crying and being vulnerable. But yes, it's OK for us to make jokes, um, but it's not OK for us to make jokes at the expense of any individuals. It's not okay for us to shame anyone. It's not okay for us to make people feel unsafe. Discomfort is data that you're growing. Discomfort means that you should maybe sit with that and ask curious questions. Why does this make me uncomfortable? Jesus, 99% of Jesus' conversations were questions, right? So what if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and ask questions, even with our own intolerable beliefs and our intolerable feelings that come up? That is not the same as using humor as a way to make people feel small. So I just want to be very clear. Uh, Eric, I'd love for you to introduce yourself just in terms of like who you are in the world, what you do, just so people have a grid for where you're coming from and all that. Okay, so my name is Eric Feltis. I am a gay life coach that helps other gay men free themselves from church shame. I identify as a Christian with um, Buddhist tendencies. Um, I believe... For me, my Christianity means that I choose to try to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. I do not have the belief that you need to believe in Jesus to get to heaven. Um, I personally do not believe that Jesus believes that. When Jesus talks about, um, you know, that you can get to that kingdom of heaven through me, I believe that Jesus is talking about creating a heaven here on earth. Um, I also, you know, Words are so interesting, aren't they? And they carry so much weight to different people. Um, the word Christian means something different, I think, to every single person. Uh, it holds a lot of trauma for a lot of people. Um, so I think it's important to kind of specify what we mean by some of these words. I also think that Jesus was a Buddha himself. Um, Buddhism is all about finding your inner peace and your inner knowing and choosing love for self, others, and a higher power. I think that's what Jesus did. Um, I'm also an actor in Los Angeles. I'm from right outside Chicago, but I've been in LA for a little over six years. I have about 20 house plants and an awesome dog who is my hiking buddy. And that's a little bit about me. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Um, when I was in LA, we were, were at a party at a mutual friend's house in, um, where was that again? Long Beach. Long Beach. Thank you. Long Beach. And you thought it was LA. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's a valley somewhere as well. <laughs> um, I like California, it's cool. <laughs> so at some, it was like 11 o'clock at night. The party was basically over. People were starting to, like people were leaving. That was like becoming a normal thing. And then the neighbor came over. She was, 
I think it just, I think you could classify her as a straight white single woman is probably an appropriate. That's how she identified, I think, yes. And so I was sitting on this, what? Love seat swing in the front yard. And Eric was to my right. And Alicia Johnson was to my left. She's a bisexual, Seventh-day Adventist, former Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And then Rocky Roggio, who's the director of 1946, was sitting across from us. The four of us were hanging out. We're all queer, right? And then the straight woman comes over and sits down on a stump in front of Eric directly. And then that's the scene. And we were having such a great time. We all just felt very relaxed and like at peace and just enjoying the common, you know, the commonality that I don't think was just common to experience all the time. And then walks in walks the neighbor, Eric, take it away. Imagine you're having a conversation with three people and someone comes and takes a human sized monkey that does this and puts it next to you and it just goes off and there's no room for conversation. That's what happened. Dang it, I already broke my rule. No, here's the thing. She was absolutely lovely. And I think that I probably would have said that to her face, honestly, and she probably would have laughed. I got the sense that she was performing. It all felt very performative, is what I mean by that. And sort of, robbed uh, the opportunity to converse in the way that we were conversing before she came. Um, I think she, from what I sensed and the very little that I know about her, she seems like a very lovely, good hearted person that wants to love and understand others. But I felt like she was a little uncomfortable because she was the only straight person in the room. And so it's a really good question if you're not gay. ask yourself, how many times have you been the only straight person in the room? Question for me, how many times have I been the only white person in the room? I can count the times on one hand, if that. Um, And so it's okay to feel uncomfortable. But what happens is I think we all have our own coping mechanisms. And I think her coping mechanism is performance. I don't think that that's who she is at her core, but I think when she was starting to feel uncomfortable, she started performing a little bit. Am I off base or do you feel like you oh, agree a little bit? No, yeah. of course. I think. And so, well, Bob, help me out with this because I don't, I don't really remember. Yeah, so no, the thing is like, she was a nonstop monologuer. She would, she would not stop talking. So literally- No room for conversation. No one else could say anything else. And it was such a change from what it had been for the first, for like yes. right before she got there. It was such a cool atmosphere and everyone was getting to like exchange things. And then she showed up and then she just talked nonstop the whole time. And it was all like, about how much she loves gay people, wasn't it? Right? Yeah. Right, no, that's true. It was a monologue and it was like, hyper fixated on gay people and i think it just started kind of unraveling or getting a little bit more out of control the more she talked because like the more she talked the less material she understood or felt comfortable with i think and she was kind of running out of like things she knew were safe to say in the presence of queer people and then i think the moment that i lost it i think no sorry you lost it first and then that was the linchpin for the whole thing just kind of falling apart she said, you said, she asked you about your family and you said you had a sister and then she made some kind of comment about how you probably did her hair and her nails or did nails with her growing up, right? Was, do you remember that? I don't remember that. Oh, okay. I... Well, she said that to you and you were like, <laughs> I remember I looked over at you because it was like dead silent when she waited for you to respond and you were sitting there like this because you had kind of glazed over at this point. So let me, let me, let me also interrupt and say like, this is also true about me. I'm engaging, I'm engaged. I'm a good conversationalist, but when I'm done, I am done. When I reach my limit, like I, I can't fake it. I check out. I'll be at a, a kind of get this from my dad. Gosh, I'll remember we would be at dinner growing up, like out, out to dinner at a restaurant. 
reminds me of like Applebee's, like my Midwest upbringing. And, you know, we would be done and my dad would just go, like, oh, I guess, I guess we're done now. <laughs> I guess we're done. It's like, this what do you mean? Did just leave the table? Yeah, he would just like get up and like, he wouldn't actually leave, but he would like get up to leave. And we were like, oh, well, that's ready to go. <laughs> like, and I think I developed, I'm much, I can say that I'm more mindful than my father, but I know that about me. Like I do, I don't leave, but I check out. So I am not, I don't even remember saying that. I was clearly- So just, she, she asked you the question and I, you, I look over at you and I felt kind of uncomfortable. I'm like, oh God, like this is, the tension is so like, it's building. And you were like this, sitting on the right side of the bench, just kind of looking at her. And you yeah. didn't even like give the curse, like the, um, the cordial, like trying smile. You were just like, no, we didn't do that. I didn't do her nails. I didn't like do her hair. That, that's not what we did. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's awkward. And I felt proud of you for like saying, like standing up for yourself and pushing against that like stereotype and whatever. And then I forget, she said something else to you. You tried to like kind of help her out. I don't remember what she said, but at some point in the middle of that, you just, you lost it. You just started laughing in the middle of her talking. You just started laughing. And I was like, this is awful. This is awful. You just, and you didn't just like, chuckle a little bit you like started physically shaking from laughing so hard and then that made yeah. me start laughing and then yeah. she was laughing too because I think she was uncomfortable but like you just you had already checked out and then you decided to jump off the cliff and that looked like you just like laughing your head off and then I think we started crying from laughing so hard because it was so uncomfortable and, and then yeah and then she got up she got up to get some wine so she left right and the four of us were left there and we were kind of like what just happened, right? We're just kind of like processing, like what just happened to us? And Alicia pointed out, that's probably the first time she's ever been the only straight person in the room. And straight people get very uncomfortable when they're surrounded by queer people because they've never experienced it before. And we're all just used to it, right? And I was like, and I was like oh my gosh, that's true. I, and I, then I realized like, I, I didn't notice until that moment that I had actually felt very relaxed and, and like safe and at home at that party, even though most of these people I didn't know very well. Right. And I wasn't even conscious of that feeling because I'm so used to living life in a guarded state, right? And like a, I'm going to continue to pivot and adjust and adapt to the what everyone else around me expects or is experiencing, you know, in those ways, because it's never my normal, right? So all of a sudden in that space, it was like a totally different space. And then she showed up and it was different again. But that was such a fascinating social experience. I think Just that's the chocolate. She did bring us really good moose. That's really true. good. It was really good. Um, you know, what was nice about that is like, I didn't feel uncomfortable. I felt annoyed at moments and entertained at other moments and, you know, reaching for compassion in other moments. Um, but I didn't feel uncomfortable. And that was a gift, right? And I think that's what you're describing. <clears throat> and I think that this is one benefit. You know, I said that I, I help specifically gay men, gay men free themselves from church shame. And it's through a 10 week program. And part of that, is the community aspect. There are group sessions, there's a Facebook group as well. And, you know, what I always tell people, so many men that come to me say that, you know, they feel like they are not gay enough for the gay community and they're not Christian enough for the Christian community. And I say, you are enough, period. And how can we practice that enoughness? By putting you in a situation where you feel like you are enough without having to fake it or work on it. How can we do that? put you with other um, people who have also 
who identify as gay who have also been burned by the church. Some go back to church, some never want to step inside a church again. That's okay. My mission is to help men love themselves deeply and unconditionally like God does. Um, and when you can walk into that Zoom room for the first time and not, you don't have to come out because there's nothing to come out of because we're all in this together. It's such a healing moment. And Mike, I'm so glad that you felt that um, at that party. Have you, how many times have you felt that wholeness before that party? <clears throat> I don't know. I imagine there might've been one or two other times probably, but that was like a new realization in that moment. So I, it might've been the first time. That sounds dramatic. But. No, it does, and, and 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 that's not to say you can't feel whole with your family or with your friends, right? Um, but that's a you you sink into that enoughness in a way that you've never experienced before, and it's almost like growing up with a black and white TV your whole life and not knowing anything else exists, and then one day your dad brings home an HD, you know, big screen, flat screen, beautiful color TV, and you didn't know what you were missing, but as soon as you watch that, you're like oh, this is different. And it's hard to go back to the other, right? Um, to give people that gift is, is an honor. Yeah. Mm, totally. And to feel it myself. I also, I also feel whole, you know, hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people, right? And so, and I'm sure, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I feel in coaching others, I'm kind of coaching myself along the way because we are reflections of ourselves when we work with our clients. Mm, totally, <laughs> totally. Nice. Okay. So I don't know why I asked you to share that story. It's so random, but um, good stuff came of it. It was marking for sure. I mean, it was just like such a funny, memorable. I found it to be enjoyable. I actually really enjoyed her. It was, I too. but I liked her as a person and I was glad we got to have the experience. I was done. <laughs> you were done. That's I done. But I enjoyed her for the time that I enjoyed her until I did. Even like when we helped to clean up the party afterward and we we're just moving furniture and all the things, she still had me cackling the whole time. Like I just- Sure, because it's not concentrated in your face the whole time. <laughs> okay, so I wanna hear, I want people to get to hear from you, your journey, your story. I know you, you speak and preach and share your story in those ways, in those contexts, and it's a little bit more involved and in all that. So I, I understand this context might not be the same um, kind of share, but I would love for people to get to hear a bit of your journey and where you came from and how you got where you are today, whatever you feel is pertinent and would like to share in this space. I want to hear it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I grew up in the Midwest. I touched on a little bit of this, um, just a little bit of it already, cliff notes, but I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up Catholic. Um, I have a sister who's five years older than me. We both went to Catholic school through eighth grade. She went, she ended up continuing on the Catholic journey to an all-girls Catholic school for high school. I ended up going to um, a, a public school in high school, which really saved my life. Um, I, but in high school, I stopped going to the Catholic church and I, I found an evangelical church that I really resonated with. People often ask me why, like, why did I go down that path? Well, for one hindsight is 2020. Um, but also because there were beautiful things that came of it. And I think I would be doing myself and others a disservice to ignore that. Nothing in its entity is in its entirety is all good or all evil. Well, some things are, but for the most part, that's we're all complex beings, and every social structure is also a com is is also complex. <clears throat> what I loved about this evangelical church is that 
people were on fire for God. They were excited. It was an excitement and a personal relationship with the higher power that I had never experienced before. There were also a lot of young kids there. You know, growing up Catholic and going to a Catholic school, going to two masses a week, um, wrote prayer. It didn't mean much to me because it's all I knew. And, you know, for me personally with rope prayer, I'm not, at least at that age, I'm not really thinking of what I'm saying. I'm just going through the motions. It felt like a check mark. My relationship with God felt like a conditional relationship and it felt like a check mark. Um, <clears throat> something to do, right? <clears throat> so I felt like this was a different opportunity to find God. And I love that people were using their own personal words to talk about God. Um, that really made me excited. I also just made some good friends there and I felt keyword felt like I belonged. Um, you know, Brene Brown talks about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in is cutting off pieces of yourself to be what society says you should be, right? Um, I talk about this in my sermon, the word should belongs in that category of fitting in, right? But belonging is a being a part of something that's bigger than you. So you can be seen safe and celebrated, not in spite of who you are, but as you are because of who you are. I think that you and I felt a sense of belonging at that party for that reason, because we were seen, you know, figuratively naked as we are. Um, now, I felt like I belonged, but in reality, I was pushing away such a big part of me, which was my homosexuality. You know, I came out at 25, and when I came out, both of my parents, the first thing they said was, what did we ever do or say to ever make you feel you could not come out to us? It, it broke their hearts, which is the best response a parent can have. Um, because they're constantly learning. You know, my mom is my biggest ally. I think the biggest trait of an ally is curiosity. And my mom delights in my life. And she asks curious questions. She asks if I went on a date. She asks a follow-up, unless I ask her not to. <laughs> um, but she really delights in knowing me as I am. So when I came out at 25, both my parents said, what did we ever do or say to make you feel you could not come to us with this? Which was just very healing. Um, I think it broke their hearts that I thought that they wouldn't love me. And I really thought that they wouldn't love me. And I think it's important to know this, especially if you're not gay. I can't tell you how many times I hear on a weekly basis, people say that, yeah, people say that they love me, but I just don't believe it. And why would we? Why would we believe it? We're taught by society, by the absence of conversation in our homes, by media, especially in our age growing up, that being gay is not just an abomination and a sin, but it's disgusting, it's embarrassing. I remember being bullied in middle school and in high school for something that I didn't even necessarily think that I was. I was in so much denial. So what I ended up telling my parents upon reflection years later was it's not what you said, it's what you didn't say. It was the absence of conversation. There's violence in the silence. And there was a lot of silence around that topic. So I had no space to talk. Shame grows in dark spaces. Shame grows in a closet like fungus. If the door is shut and we're alone with our shame, and we have no one to share that shame with, it will grow. And it grew. And I wanted to be unalive most of my childhood, since puberty. I remember the first time I fantasized about a man, I was in seventh grade. It felt great, 
but I also thought that I could sort of sweep that feeling under the rug, right? Um, <clears throat> if we're going to get into the anatomy of it, physiological experience of an orgasm, an orgasm feels really good. And then it leaves your body both physically and almost chemically as well, right? Um, you don't have that urge anymore. So I, growing up, sort of tied homosexuality to an orgasm. I thought I could sweep it under the rug, right? Um, so something that I could manage and I didn't really have to talk to anyone about. Um, I experienced depression in seventh grade for the first time. And yes, there's a correlation between my depression and recognizing that I was different from the other boys. I didn't make that correlation at that time. But I do remember around the third therapy session, the therapist very casually saying, well, you're probably gay. And I remember never wanting to see him again. I hated him. It made me so uncomfortable. Um, and again, I cried myself to sleep. I prayed the words, dear God, change me, change me, change me. And I truly believe that God would change me. This is even through high school, even into my early 20s. I really believed God would change me because God's promises, miracles. And this is wrong. And if this is wrong and God promises miracles, then, then, then I will be transformed. And if I'm not, then it's my fault. Then I'm not working hard enough. Then I shouldn't have masturbated. I shouldn't have looked at porn. And I, God forbid, should talk about it. And I think that we're also taught that your feelings are real and your feelings are facts. So if I feel bad because of my understanding of God and, un, and, and uh, God's conditional transactional love for me, then I am bad. If I believe it, then I am. And that I'm being punished for this, right? And that good deeds and prayer will make it go away. Years and years and years and years and years and years of compounded shame, y'all. <clears throat> you don't know what you don't know. But to this day, I'm unraveling it. I am still working on myself. I've been out for 11 years. You know, I tell people that I can, I can, I can, you can become free of shame in a 90 day program, my 90 day program. That's not true. You don't become free of shame. What do you do? You become uh, resilient to the shame through tools that you must practice on a daily basis. Someone very close to me not long ago said, oh, I'm just not good with my emotions. Two things. Thing one, you have a very fixed mindset if you feel you can't grow or change from that. Fixed mindset means you can't change. You are who you are. You're static. You're born this way. I'm not talking about being gay. I'm talking about like you're born with your talent or you're born with your ability to do things or you're not. So if you're not good with emotions, you're never going to be. That's thing one. And that's just not true. You cannot change if you don't believe you can change. Thing number two, this is someone that was very that is very close to me. The reason you're not good with your emotions is because you haven't been in therapy since seventh grade. You haven't wished you were unalive your whole life. I journal every day. I meditate every day. I work on myself every day. I talk to people that I love every day. When I'm feeling uncomfortable, I put words to it. Because once you open that closet door, the shame diminishes a little bit. And every time you put words to it, it diminishes a little bit. It's because as Brene Brown says, words hate to have words Shame hates to have words wrapped around it. So wrap words around your shame, share it with someone. Shame is telling you that you're the only person that feels this way. It's bullshit. That is the devil. The devil is in you. It's a part of you. It's your fear. It's your doubt, right? So I pushed through and I pushed through and I pushed through and I equated love to productivity. 
I believe that love was conditional. If this, then this. If you do this, then you will be good. If you get good grades, you will be approved. If you take a, a, a female to the prom, you will get nods of approval. If you get a good job, you will be liked. If you're liked, you will be loved because it'll feel good. It was all transactional. It was all external. <clears throat> and so I did that. I pushed through and I succeeded at everything I did. I'm a hard worker in part because of my shame. So I started dating a woman in college. Um, well, I actually met her in high school. She was older than me though, but we, it was a long distance relationship for a lot of it. And um, we were together for five years. We were engaged. So I was 25. And uh, six months before the wedding, we lived together at this point. Um, I met a man who was supposed to direct a show with me. And uh, I was a high school theater and Spanish teacher at this time. I was supposed to direct a show with this guy. And we sat across from each other at Panera Bread in Oswego, Illinois. And um, we never opened the scripts. For two hours, we never opened the scripts. I was too busy falling in love with his eyes. I was feeling seen. It was the first time. How do I say this? It was the first time with a man that I that my first urge wasn't to have that orgasm, right? It was the first time that I didn't want to expel these feelings. It felt holy. What is the root word of holy? Whole. Holiness is sitting in your wholeheartedness. It's being a full human as you are, figuratively naked, as we said. I was seen. I felt Christ in him. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? And I woke up. Um, a couple of days later, I actually did cheat. That was, I would say that was an emotional cheating. I, I physically cheated on my fiance at that time a couple days later. And I remember going back home and it was this weird, surreal in between of leaving heaven and going back to my prison that I created. I created it. There was no turning back from that. And so um, I did a full Britney Spears. This is before Britney Spears did this. I shaved my head. And, um, and I say that, which is, I know it sounds funny, but I, I, I don't think I knew, I don't think I had control over my body at that time. I was breaking down and I shaved my head. And I don't know if maybe I thought that the shame was in my hair. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why, but I think it's important to say, because this is where I was at. And telling her what I had done, God, I waited in my car the next day after shaving my head. I waited in my car for her to come home and I was in the garage. Garage door was closed. My car was off. I was sitting in my car. And I called my dad and I said, I cheated on her. And I'm going to tell her. And my dad said, he was shocked. Again, to be clear, this was six months before the wedding. The save the dates were already out. And, I, and my dad said to me, um, do you love her? Meaning the person that I cheated on my fiance with. And I said, I do not love her. And I left it at that. So, so she comes home, she falls on the grass. Like I'm feeling, I'm like feeling the anxiety as I tell this story. It was 11 years ago. She parks. She knows that I had been, things have been weird for a couple of days. She knew that much. She just didn't know what. 
she gets out of her car, she sits in my car and I couldn't look at her. I was looking straight and I was straight. I was looking straight ahead. And uh, I said, I have something to tell you. And she goes, okay. And then she said, I know. I was like, oh, okay. And then I said, I cheated on you. And then she said, what? And I was like, wait, what did you know? <laughs> I never got to that. I don't know what she knew. <laughs> what? Oh, no. But it's that moment when you're like, up a roller coaster. And it's like, as soon as you go over, it's like, there's no pulling back. Your stomach drops out of your body, you're down, and you're just on the ride. You just let it take because you don't know what's going to happen. It's chaos. It felt like chaos. It's free falling. It's also literally, not literally, figuratively a leap of faith. Faith, I believe, is sitting in the discomfort of the unknown and choosing to love yourself anyway. That's faith. Letting go of the how. I don't know if I would have given myself that much credit at that time, but that's true. It takes courage. Courage comes from the root word core, which means to tell one's, means means heart. Courage means to tell one's heart. So it takes courage to do these things, y'all. And, uh... So then I told her who it was with and it was just, I mean, all hell broke loose. It was awful. It was awful. I can, I I can only imagine what she was going through at that time, how painful and scary and embarrassing it was for her. Um, Especially since I had just asked her to marry me six months before. By the way, the, 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 the six months of being engaged was some of the worst moments of my life because there was so much pressure that I put on myself I just felt like that was the next thing you do and I thought that if I keep doing these actions I will rid myself of this it was awful I mean it was like a pressure cooker and I was miserable my parents told me that I was not good to her after I came out they're like I guess they had conversations in bed while I was with her for these five years thinking, and they asked each other questions like, what did we do to raise a son like this? I was visibly, I was visibly miserable. And misery just, it's not easy to take care of people when you're miserable. Um, So I think that the pressure cooker was like, picking out tangible things for the wedding that made it very real, right? What am I doing? So anyway, it all came crashing down. Um, We ended up, you know, breaking up. She was the first person I came out to because I want to say the next day, I think up until that point, I'd say things like, I would tell like my family members that I cheated on her with a guy. And that was my way of coming out. I couldn't say the word gay. It was too painful. I would, I would say like homosexual tendencies often because that separates me from it, which is something I hear from a lot of side B people. A side, a side B Christian is a Christian who identifies as same-sex attracted, um, but, but don't believe it's okay to act on it. So they don't because they put their identity in Christ, which I understand the justification, but I think it's um, for a lack of a more compassionate word, I believe it's a cop-out because you are cutting off a piece of yourself. I think Christ wants us to love all of us. 
Um, so then the next day she said, so are you gay? And I said, I don't know. And she says, you still don't know? And I said, okay, I am. I ripped the bandaid off. I said it to her for the first time. And that was the first time I ever said I'm gay was to her, the person that I hurt the most, the person that I've betrayed the most in this world. And uh, yeah, then I slowly came out to people. And I think that I thought that coming out would make my life easy. Coming out does not make your life easy. Coming out makes your life authentic. It's real. It becomes real. The problems you have are not in a closet anymore. You can take the problems out and spread them around the room. And it almost becomes like moving, right? Like when we move, our, our house, our apartment gets messier before it gets tidier. So in the deconstruction process of figuring out what it means to be gay, um, everything exploded. And I realized who loved me versus who said they loved me. And that's where I saw the ugliness. I also saw some of the beautiful moments there. Some people did, I would say two or three people came out of the woodwork to support me from that church. Most people didn't want anything to do with me. I got a letter from someone um, apologizing that he didn't try harder. I didn't tell you the story, This, but during my time, I, I did express my homosexual tendencies to uh, my pastor. My pastor, um, my pastor kind of set me up with this guy who also struggled with homosexual tendency, who was married to a woman and had kids. And I asked him point blank once, is sex enjoyable? And he was so sad. He just looked so empty. And I know that that's how I looked at that time. No life, there was no life. And he said he still struggles. And he said that most of the time having sex with his wife felt like he was masturbating in another body. So this conversion therapy bullshit, this, you know, trying to change who you are causes so much destruction. So he ended up sending me an, an apology letter. I'm sorry for not trying harder. And look, I threw it away. I wish I didn't throw it away, but I'm the kind of person that with a breakup, with any anything that's over, I don't want any sign of it anymore. People deal with tragedy in different ways. That's me. I don't want any sign of it. So I did throw it away, um, but I wish I hadn't. And I have so much more compassion for him now. You know, compassion means to suffer with others. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate sign of compassion. God loves us so much that God formed himself in human flesh to suffer with us. That is the ultimate form of unconditional love. And yet we use Jesus as a weapon to separate us as opposed to to humanize us. The more I love my queerness, the more I love Jesus. I think about how I would cry myself to sleep at night. And then I think about Jesus in Gethsemane the night before he was murdered. He was 33. He was a baby. I like to say he was a baby because I'm older than him. Um, and he suffered. And he said, God, I don't want to do this. He had faith because he was sitting in the discomfort of the unknown. He said, I don't want to do this. And so I now equate my suffering to Jesus's suffering. I had, I had the most vivid spiritual experience less than a year ago. I had a breakdown and I was sobbing and I saw myself walk into the room. I, not physically, but I sensed myself. I saw like almost like the highest version of myself. It's hard to explain. 
and it was Christ. And I know some people might hear that and think that's blasphemous, but hear me out. I think there's a reason it was me and not the version of Christ, Jesus, that we see. Because I think it was God showing me that Christ is in me. And what that version of me said to me was, thank you for not giving up on me. And I sobbed. And then I got this image of Jesus. That's when I got that image of Jesus sobbing in Gethsemane. So this is to say that we can choose to use Jesus as a weapon to avoid the intolerable beliefs that we are bad. Or we can sit in our discomfort and choose compassion and recognize that Jesus is human, is us, and that we are him. So then I left the church for about six months. Oh, I want to say something else about that letter. I think that he, I think one reason he sent the apology to me was because I think he felt he failed. And I think that he's still living in this conditional love, this idea of transactional love. And he thinks that if he could have fixed me, then he would have done something right in the world. And so because he felt like he failed me, he failed himself. Uh, he, yeah, he's giving me way too much power in that. Um, so I left church for about six months because I, I didn't really think I'd ever go back. And then I found Urban Village Church, which is a United Methodist Church in Chicago. It's open and affirming. It was the first space that I saw openly queer people. It's the first space that I saw queer people in leadership positions. It's the first time I really believed that maybe God loves me unconditionally. That was a space where I asked hard questions to gay people. How do you know you're not going to hell? You know, that's those are hard questions to answer that no one needs to answer ever, ever. It's not there. They don't have to, but they chose to. And they made a really safe space for me. And I sang in the worship group and I was seen and I gave my testimony. And I, for the first time, I felt a community where I could have sex with a man on a Saturday night. And then go to church on Sunday and wrestle with the shame that I was still experiencing about experiencing from the sex that I had the night before. That is Christ. It's bringing all of yourself to the table, not checking it at the door. Um, I think that that's why I still identify as Christian from that church. So then I moved to Los Angeles about six years ago. And I, I always say that I've kind of been a life coach for much of my life. I was a, a, a teacher for a very long time. I have a master's in educational leadership. I love being in leadership roles. I love creating curriculum. I love helping people. I love being in the business of people. But I moved here for acting. And I had side jobs off and on that I just hated. The longest was a, 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 literally, Mike, I did everything except serving, um, which is wild that I didn't do that. But I worked at a, a I called it telehell, and now I don't know what they're actually called. Uh, like we called people and asked them for money, like we like for different companies, like Planned Parenthood. Do you know what it's like calling people, random people in the country at seven p.m. and interrupting their dinner and asking if they want to give to an organization that they that they very much possibly view is awful? Like it was demor, it was awful, terrible job. And you know what I noticed in that season of my life that every time I got an audition, I was hoping that audition would save me from a terrible job. And that's not healthy. So I finally started monetizing my coaching business. Um, September 1st will be the year anniversary of establishing my LLC. And I get messages every day now from people saying that either things like, wow, Eric, you've put words to things that I've never been able to put words to before, all the way to I've saved their lives. And to be able to use my, oh my God, 
to be able to use my trauma, what to be able to use like something that I so badly wanted out of me to help other people. And I think back at those times when I pray, dear God, change me, change me, change me. And I realized God did change me. God didn't make me straight. God changed me and transformed my mind to help me to love myself deeply so that my cup can run over and I can help others to love themselves. And now I'm talking to you and that's where I'm at. Wow. Thank you for your vulnerability, Eric. Um, what was choking you up there at the end? What, what were you feeling? Um, a lot. It's really hard for me not to suffer with them people that message me every day. And I get messages from people in India who can't do the program because it's illegal to be gay in India. They could get killed for it. And I get messages from, you know, I mean, I know you do too. Like we get messages that just remind us of our own trauma. And so it's a mix, right? It's complex. It's, it's feelings of, at times, helplessness and hopelessness at times. At other times of just immense gratitude. And I just like, I'm just, I think I'm getting emotional because I'm just in so much awe and wonder at how boundless God's love is for us. And we human beings cannot conceptualize the idea of unconditional or infinity. We can't. And so when people tell us that, that homosexuality is wrong, that's the sin. That is missing the mark of love. How dare you tell God that God has limits on God's love for us? How dare you? How dare you have such a little faith and in your own insecurity, use God as a weapon to keep others down. How dare you? And so I get really angry. I have a lot of fierce loyalty and love for the queer community. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing. It's a gift getting to hear not just your story, but also like experience your heart, you know, in the midst of you recalling those things. Because, yeah, there's, I mean, there's depth there, obviously, right? And um, you've like touched places in God that I think a lot of people you know, either can't articulate, don't ever experience or don't know what to do with or don't have a weight. So I think it's a gift to like experience someone who is so explicitly and like in a focused way is engaging with the presence of the Christ in them and, you know, putting like action and words and heart into doing something with that substance, that presence, you know, like it's beautiful. So thank you. I, I love how intense you are <laughs> and how like present you are and all of it. It's Very awesome. intense. <laughs> so you're so intense. I remember we had dinner. <laughs> I don't even Oh remember. God, I'm worried. <laughs> I just remember we had dinner and you were telling me parts of your story. And I was like, my God, this person's intense. This is awesome. I mean, okay. I like no, I enjoy and appreciate intensity. I consider myself an intense person. Um, I don't know that most people are intense and I think a lot of people are intimidated by intensity or like scares them or whatever. I find it, I, there's something about it that I find I really appreciate it. So um. I'm wondering if part of that, Mike, is, you know, your ability to hold space for others could be, you know, you know, people say this a lot that religion is for people who are afraid of hell. Spirituality is for those who have been there and who choose to create heaven here on earth. And you and I have been through hell. We know what it's like. So I think that our capacity to love is grand. Yeah, totally. 
And that concludes part one of my interview with Eric Feltes. Isn't Eric cool? He's such a cool guy. I'm so glad we're friends. Um, listen, if you are queer and you are still working out your sexuality and your faith, you're probably like walking around in the Christian world trying to figure out, can I be this way and still follow Jesus? Um, if that's you, we've got a group specifically for you um, with other queer people who have been on the same journey. It's called The Rainbow Room. If you want to check that out, I've provided a link below for you to um, get more information about that. Um, if you're an ally, you have someone important in your life who's queer and you're like, oh my gosh, I love this person and I know that God is not condemning them, but you need help reconciling that journey with your faith. We've got a group for you. It's called Allies. There's a link below provided for you to check that out as well. And then lastly, I want you to know that if you are, you know, in the trenches of working out, whether you're a queer uh, person working out your sexuality, whether you're an ally, whether you're someone in your deconstruction process just needing some help or support or guidance, I have recently started taking coaching clients again. Um, I only have limited availability, but if that's something that you think would be helpful for you, I've provided a link below as well for you to check that out. So if you'd like to hire me as a coach, I'm happy to jump in the boat with you and bring a wealth of knowledge and experience and discernment to that process. All right, you guys, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.